At the end of the year in 2011, I was well into a program studying to be a spiritual director. And during this particular year of the program, we were learning a lot about how to deal with people in spiritual direction when they faced various life issues. We got to a unit on addiction. And we had a number of books to read and articles to read, and we had some seminars. And I remember in the middle of that curriculum, putting a book down I was reading about doing soul work and addiction. And it hit me like somebody, you know, the lightning bolt or the, the tap over the head. Oh, so this is why I've always had such trouble losing weight. Eating is an addictive behavior. At the time, I weighed just over 300 pounds, was on five blood pressure medications. And I cried for probably an hour with that book on my lap. And I began going to a 12-step program. In six months, I lost 95 pounds. And I put a little of it back on, but I learned enough about my own behavior with eating as an addiction that I've gotten pretty good about watching myself. It starts to go up a bit. It starts to go down again. <laughs> and, but it's hard. It, it's hard because, you know, we do use our addictions as a coping mechanism, as a survival strategy. And I think one of the hardest parts about it was being able to admit that to anybody, especially having a very public job. It was great when people started to comment how much weight I had lost, but there was also shame involved in it, too, that I needed to do that in the first place. And that there was a, a trouble I had with this that, that was beyond just, hey, watch what you eat. If it was that easy, just like, hey, don't use, I wouldn't have had so much of an issue. You know, part of the, the struggle for me was through that period, keeping in mind that I was a holy one, that I was still okay. I wrote about this week in the newsletter house. A couple of you have mentioned how you like, I use the term holy ones in the service and call you holy ones. And I do that on purpose because I think it's a really core value of our universalism. And theologically, it has such a neat story. It comes from the Greek, hagion, and the plurals hagia, and when you see Hagia in the New Testament, when the writers are addressing all the saints in you know, Rome or all the saints in Galatia, the word there is Hagia, the holy ones. And with our universalism, we're all holy ones. And you don't have to be pious. You don't have to be strict with your religious rules and observations. And you don't have to perform miracles. And you don't even have to be dead to be a saint. It's our inherent worth, our inherent dignity, our humanity, our very ordinariness that is holy. One of the most difficult things about addiction as a spiritual issue is when we treat addiction with that stigma, we stop seeing the holy in the other. Instead of something to be holy there, part of the human journey, what we see is some reason for that person to be ashamed and we don't want to admit it because we don't like seeing whatever might be there in ourselves that might be close to that. One of the odd things about being a minister is that for a long time, and I share this with a lot of people, and I recently heard this story at a, uh, 
a speaking event I went to, is that sometimes we get this sense in our heads, us ministers, that we'd love to see a church filled with all kinds of people like us. And it's odd how that's always true. I saw Nadia Bowles Weber speak a couple weeks ago in Boston. Her latest book is called Accidental Saints. And her church is called House for All Sinners and Saints in, in Denver. And she's about six feet tall, has tattoos all over her body, is a Lutheran, funky haircut, great speaker, excellent preacher. And she said she started this church in her house for the LGBT community. And it started with eight people in her living room, now have a few hundred. And in the early days of the church that started to grow, she is a former drug addict and a former alcoholic, a recovering addict and recovering alcoholic. And she noticed all the people coming to her church, she said, were really emotionally damaged and struggling with so many common things, pain, their rent, illnesses, that she started to think, how am I going to have the emotional energy for all this? Everybody's so in bad shape. And she said, and when I got clean and I realized I had to call the ministry, I figured I'd have a cool church, all kinds of people like me, you know, kind of cool, hip, recovery, you know, into things, a little hipsterish. And, and she said, I was so sad that my church wasn't full of people like me until I remembered my own story and realized, oh, my church is full of people like me. And so is mine. And one of the really emotionally traumatic things about addiction is we leave people out of that just like me. Sometimes because we don't want to see the just like me that's in them, in us. Our world faces an epidemic of depression and addiction and all kinds of so many things. And it involves so much. There's biology, there's biological hooks, there's relational issues, emotional issues, and spiritual issues. And our souls, I think, in our current environment in Western society have created a place where this fosters, because I think we, we strive to take away each other's humanity so much, that worth and dignity from each other, it's hard for us to recognize. There's a, there's a famous experiment dealing with addictions where they gave rats drugged water and clean water and put them in a cage, and the rat always went to the drugged water until it overdosed and killed itself. But then somebody got an idea like, well, it's an empty cage. So they made like rat heaven, you know, spinning wheels, food, other rats, all kinds of toys, whatever. And they put the drugged water and the regular water in there, and the rats hardly ever touched the drugged water. So the cage we're in has an effect. There's biology, there's physical hooks, there's relational and emotional issues. But our cage becomes increasingly one where there's less and less in it that's healthy, relational, inclusive, affirming, and holds us up. Our culture right now, we're at war with the others, whoever they are in whatever way they're other. And addiction is just another one of the ways we do that to each other. And in our culture, we are very concerned right now with opioids. 
but we have a ballot question on our ballot in Massachusetts this year about legalizing marijuana, right? And wherever you stand on that is irrelevant to me, and that's not what I want to talk about. What I want to talk about, though, is how, as I hear the debate about this, what I don't hear about the concern is how many liquor stores we have in town. Because alcohol and tobacco are the two most used drugs in our society. We create a cage with all the drugged water. And maybe the way we can all help is to create the kind of community where that cage isn't a cage, it's a home. Where you don't have to be ashamed of any part of who you are, even if part of that's being an addict. Because we're all addicted in some way and somehow to something. We use as a behavior over and over again so we don't have to deal with whatever or whatever's paining us or our past or whatever it is we want to block out. What if we did it a different way? What if addiction was a health issue, not a criminal issue? Portugal did this. 2001, 2002 in there sometime. Portugal decriminalized every drug. Heroin, marijuana, everything, all legal. And every year since, the percentage of people who have used drugs once in their lifetime or more, once in the last month or more, once in the last week or more, has steadily gone down. When someone is dealing with a drug issue or a drug offense, they don't go to court. They go to a tribunal consisting of a social worker, a lawyer, and a doctor to figure out how best to handle their need to use and how to heal from it. What if we did it differently? What if instead of what's the law and did you break this and did you use that, what if the question was how are you? What kind of love do you need? How can we help? Changes right away, doesn't it? We can do this. This is supposed to be what we are about, universalists. The dignity and worth of every person. It's a phrase that rolls off our tongue so easy and has such profound and deep implications. What does that value as Unitarian Universalists call us to do? What's better for the dignity and worth of all people, to see them as criminals or to see them with a health issue? What's better for affirming the dignity and worth of every person? What's better for our community to continue to fight a drug war or to treat addiction as a public health issue? Living into our values means doing everything we can as a faith community and as individuals to create a community and create safe spaces where we, we remove the stigma from drug use and addictions of all kinds to do our part to make our home, our church, our town, a place where it's okay to admit to your failings, okay to admit to your struggles, okay to admit to your addictive behavior, to seek help, and not be afraid that when you do so, anyone will look at you with any less dignity and respect than they will anyone else they respect. The dignity and respect that is due each and every one of us holy ones.